They just bless our time in the study of the Word of God. I thank you for those who have chosen to be here and, and made the effort to be here. And, and Lord, may we just be settled in our seats, our ears open to you, uh, Lord, our hearts soft before you, to just receive the things that you have for us as we go through these chapters and, and we go through it systematically as we go through it verse by verse, make an application um, for our own lives. So, Lord, again, we just uh, ask that you would teach us and, um, and that you would edify us and encourage us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So all the work that Solomon, as we read in chapter 5 of Second Chronicles, verse 1, that had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. And of course, we've been talking about how Solomon was charged by his father David to build the temple, the, the permanent building there in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, to where um, now this is going to be the place where sacrifices are done and where God's going to meet with his people. You recall that in the tabernacle, when it was constructed, that the Lord told Moses, construct a tabernacle, uh, construct this assembly, and there I'm going to meet with my people. And so this is the place where um, God is going to his Shekinah glory be, where the sacrifices are going to be performed out there in the outer court. And Solomon, as we saw, raised up a huge workforce, uh, about 80,000 that worked in the quarry, 70,000 that would carry the stones down to the Temple Mount, and then 30,000 that was uh, involved in bringing cedar logs up from Tyre um, and Sidon up in Lebanon, up in that area, uh, floating those logs down the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa and then up to Jerusalem. And Solomon used a lot of gold in making of the temple. Now, here's one of the interesting things is that we talked about how, and we're going to see actually here uh, next week, that Solomon completes the temple. He's going to give this prayer of dedication, which is an incredible prayer. And then we're going to see that after he accomplished what was in his heart, Solomon begins to do other projects. And he begins to continue to amass gold. And you recall that we talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that the Lord said that you shall not multiply gold. And one of the questions that was asked me, which was a good question, will Solomon multiply gold and use that gold in the building of the temple? Because we saw that, um, as we were going to see here in just a few minutes, the Ark of the Covenant placed in the Holy of Holies, that whole entire room was overlaid with gold, even the floors, and then the golden cherubim that was 15 feet high and its wingspans uh, of those cherubims went from one end of the room to the other end of the room. And so Solomon did that uh, using a lot of gold in the making of the temple and also silver and bronze and metals like that. So gold was multiplied, but here's the thing, and I think it's a good principle for us in our lives, our Christian lives, is that he was multiplying gold at this time for the building of the temple. And you recall that it was David's desire and it was Solomon's desire to build a temple to magnify the Lord. He wanted to bring glory and honor to the Lord, not to himself, not to his own name, not for his father, not, you know, uh, any of those reasons, but to magnify the Lord, to bring glory and honor to him. But here's the thing to remember, that the Lord said that the king was not to multiply gold for himself. And you see, that's where we get into trouble. 
And that's where we begin to lose perspective and start to become carnal. And, and um, when we start to, to just uh, gain possessions and things, whatever it might be, whatever is our goal, just for ourselves. Rather than, Lord, that whatever it is that you bless me with, I want to use it for the kingdom of God. I want to be a good steward of it. So Solomon, we're going to see, is going to continue to multiply gold gold for himself, and we're going to see other things that he did that was contrary to what uh, the Lord would have him to do. But right now, he finished the work of the temple. It took seven years to complete, and it took time to do this because it was a magnificent temple, um, even though there was a huge workforce. And one of the things that we need to remember that God takes his time in the construction of the temple. And what I'm talking about is the living temple, you being the temple of God individually and us together corporately as a church. God is continually working, and, and we know that he's going to finish that work uh, when he takes us home to be with himself. But right now, we're a work of progress, and the Lord is continuing to do that work in us individually and in our families and in this church corporately. So here is Solomon as he finished the temple, and the things David dedicated to the temple would go into the temple treasuries. We continue reading in verse 2, So Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all of the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. And therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the kings at the feast, which was in the seventh month. And verse 4 tells us, So all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, the tabernacle meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. So the ark of the covenant, as most of you know, was the only furnishing that was in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. The temple here, this permanent building, will also have just two rooms, the holy place or the outer sanctuary, and then the uh, veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies. It's all the same. And um, so here is the holy of holies that it was behind the veil. When you walked into the holy place where the priests could go and minister, if you were a priest, that you had duties, responsibilities according to order as David divided them up, and they would go in and had responsibilities there in the holy place and changing out the shoe bread um, you know, table, that is putting fresh bread on the Sabbath and making sure that the menorahs were lit, making sure that um, they had their responsibilities of burning incense at the altar of incense. When they walked by the altar of incense, there was a veil, and then behind that veil was the Holy of Holies. And the only furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies, as most of you know, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was just a box. It was made of a wood, and a wood is, is from a tree 
that grows in the desert there. Uh, you can go around the Dead Sea if you ever tour Israel. You can see they'll point out to Kea trees. It's all throughout the desert. It's a very hardy tree. It's rot-resistant. It's a hardwood. So they used that in the making of the Ark of the Covenant, and then they lined it with gold. And it was just a box that was about three feet long and about two feet wide and about you know two feet high. And on it was a lid, and it was made of pure gold, that lid, and then also was two cherubim made of pure gold. And the Lord told Moses that I'm going to meet you between the cherubim. And, and that was called the mercy seat. And only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the nation. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. So those are things that we have discussed in details. And to remind you once again how wonderful it is that you and I, and we're going to remember it as we come to the communion table, that we've entered into this new covenant with the Lord, this new covenant based on Jesus' sacrifice for you and for me, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin, um, that his body was broken for us, um, and now we can come with confidence into the Holy of Holies as Hebrews chapter 10 declares to us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the weakness of the old covenant was it didn't bring people into the presence of God. If you're a priest, you could go into the holy place, but that's not where the Shekinah glory was. Only the high priest was allowed to on one day. So those are things that we have discussed as well. So you would go in, there's those two big cherubim made of gold, 15 feet high, and with their wings outstretched, and then there was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it. And we also know that um, as uh, it was in the inner sanctuary, uh, that the Ark of the Covenant had these um, rings that are on the corners of that box. And on the corners of that box, they would put poles in it. And the Ark of the Covenant was to be uh, carried by the Levites. The Kohathites would carry the Ark of the Covenant. At this point, they would go from the city of David, where the Ark of the Covenant had been under a tent and is now being moved into the Holy of Holies, um, where it is going to rest um, now in that room. And so the cherubim symbolizing uh, the angelic guardians of the throne of God. And uh, so it's a magnificent place. Uh, it's an awesome place uh, where the high priest would go into. We continue reading the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, and when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt, Horeb, of course, is another name of Mount Sinai. So here is the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. There was nothing in the Ark of the Covenant at this time except those two tablets that made up the Ten Commandments. We know as we read in the book of Exodus that Moses went up on the mountain and he, God gave Moses the law, gave him the Ten Commandments, and usually when you see the, um, you know, movies or you see, uh, uh, you know, pictures or drawings or, um, you know, cartoons, Moses has the Ten Commandments. And usually what you see is like the first five commandments on one stone and then the second, you know, uh, six through ten on the other stone. But this is my thought, and it's just a thought. Um, I think that both stones had all Ten Commandments on it. 
And the reason that I say that is because here we're reminded that the Ten Commandments given when God made a covenant with Israel there at Mount Sinai. And the covenant, remember, is this. The Lord said, I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to establish you as a nation. And if you follow after me, keep my law, keep my commandments, then I'm going to bless you. You'll be in the land. You'll defeat your enemies. Uh, you're going to have good crops. Uh, you're going to have a wonderful inheritance for your children. I'll defeat your enemies. All these promises and blessings that God said that he would give to his people if they would follow after him. And then we also know that the covenant would include the cursings, if they would rebel against the Lord. And that's what we're going to see very clearly as we continue through Second Chronicles, that the, the kings and the people of Judah are going to begin to rebel against the Lord. And so that's going to produce you know, defeat, and uh, the Lord uh, will hold back the rains. There's going to be famine. There's going to be locust infestations. There's going to be plagues and all those things. And we'll discuss that as we go through it. But that was a covenant that the Lord made. And whenever that you make a covenant or an agreement with somebody, a contract, usually a copy is given to you, right? And then to the other party. So that's why I think that the Ten Commandments, that those stones, that they both had the Ten Commandments that were on both of those stones. One was the people of Israel's copy, and one was, if you would, God's copy. So they were in the Ark of the Covenant. Now we also know from Exodus chapter 16 that there was the um, jar of manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant at one time. And then Numbers chapter 17 was Aaron's rod. And Aaron's rod was in there because of this rebellion from some of the leaders of the children of Israel challenging Aaron as the high priest. And the Lord said, get a rod from each of the 12 tribes and uh, get Aaron's rod. And the one that buds is the one that I've called to be the high priest. And of course, Aaron's rod would bud. And that was put into the Ark of the Covenant. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament confirms that all three of those items at one time were in the Ark of the Covenant. But what is interesting at this point when the Ark of the Covenant is put into the first temple here, that the only thing that is in there is the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. What happened to Aaron's rod? What happened to the jar of manna? We don't know. Who took them out? When it was taken out, there's no record of it in the scriptures. The other thing of, of note that is interesting is that the Ark of the Covenant, we know, was placed in the first temple. There's no record of the Ark of the Covenant ever being put in the second temple. You see, when they go into captivity in 70 years of Babylon, they come back, so the rubble comes back and rebuilds the temple. There's a record of things that the Babylonians took, the treasuries out of the temple and, um, and some of the vessels and the things that were sanctified unto the Lord back to Babylon, but the Ark of the Covenant was not listed. There's no record of the Ark of the Covenant ever being in the second temple. That, that doesn't mean there wasn't the Ark of the Covenant, but it's interesting that it is missing. It is also interesting that there is some reference from um, Titus uh, that when he came into Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the temple, that there's a reference that the Holy of Holies was empty, the second temple. So we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. The last mention of the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to see in Second Chronicles chapter 35. And that is when Josiah, the grandfather of Manasseh, orders that the priest put the Ark of the Covenant back into the Holy of Holies. So we know at one time, 
this Ark of the Covenant was taken out of the Holy of Holies. Now, there's different theories of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, just kind of a side note of interest. One of the theories is, is Manasseh, again, the grandfather of Josiah, who was the most evil king of Judah. He had put idols all throughout the temple. And it very well could be at that time that the Ark of the Covenant was taken out. There is a theory that, that some have come up with that is a very popular theory, and they take trips over to Egypt and everything, is that the priests would take the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies, they would go over to Egypt, and then eventually in, ended up in Ethiopia. There is a place in Ethiopia where they claim the Ark of the Covenant is. There's a guardian there. They have a big parade and, um, and so forth. Um, the problem that I have with that theory is, is that why then would Josiah, years later, ask for the Ark of the Covenant to be put back into the Holy of Holies if it wasn't there? The assumption from the text is, is that go get the Ark of the Covenant and put it back into the Holy of Holies. So I don't really understand that theory. I don't really buy into it. Um, again, another theory is, is that before Babylon came and destroyed the temple, um, and, and took the temple treasuries away, is that Jeremiah and some of the priests hid the Ark of the Covenant in a cave somewhere in Judah, or perhaps on the other side of the Jordan River where Mount Nebo is. That's another theory. Another theory is that it was put under the Temple Mount area where there's tunnels and, and there's chambers, and of course Solomon had a vast um, quarry that had all kinds of chambers and underground tunnels that somehow it ended up under there it is interesting i don't know how credible it is that there is one rabbi in jerusalem that claims that he has found the ark of the covenant under the temple mount and they'll bring it out at the right time so we don't know where the ark of the covenant is what happened to it um, but it was the most important furnishing there in the holy of holies it is also interesting that uh, as the uh, Jews are getting ready to build uh, a temple, which they would like to do. We know there will be a third temple, the Tribulation Temple. And one of the things that they have shown is a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. So I think that they have a replica ready to go. But will the Ark of the Covenant, here's a little bit of homework for you, will it be in the Tribulation Temple? You can sleep on that one, okay? I don't think it will be. So if you're wondering why, you can come and ask me another time. So the Ark of the Covenant, it, it just kind of an interesting furnishing that is there. I'll tell you why. The reason I don't think it'll be <laughs> in, the, in the Holy of Holies is because who's going to set up an image of himself there? The Antichrist. So that's why I don't think it'll be there. But be that as it may, the Ark of the Covenant there brought into the Holy of Holies, um, there into uh, this, um, this um, temple that Solomon has made. In verse 11, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were presented had uh, sanctified themselves without keeping of their divisions. And the Levites, who were the singers, and those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, and with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we go through this chapter and into the next chapter that this is the, the apex. This is the, 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 the most glorious time in the history of Israel. As they're dedicating the temple, the glory of the Lord is going to sh uh, show up 
to where the priest can't minister any longer, that people are going to have a great feast that's going to last for a couple weeks, there's going to be gladness of heart, great sacrificing. Um, this is a glorious, glorious time. And I want you to keep it in the back of your mind because as we continue through Second Chronicles, then we're going to see a decline of a nation that will lead them to captivity. Here is this glorious time of worshiping the Lord. This glorious time where um, this big worship service, praise given to God, it wasn't given to Solomon. It wasn't given to David. Uh, they weren't exalting, uh, you know, um, either of those guys, Solomon or David. Um, they were desiring to exalt the Lord. And you recall that when Solomon wrote that letter to Hiram, he said, you know how I want to, as it's been commissioned by my father to me, to build the Lord a house, a magnificent temple. And it was David's desire and Solomon's desire that they would exalt the Lord build this magnificent temple so the Lord would be exalted so Israel and the other nations could see that our God is a magnificent God, a wonderful God. It was to be a testimony of the goodness of God and to bring glory and honor to Him. It's really important that as we talked about that there's a temple, a living temple, that is you and I that come together and that the scripture talks about living stones being fitted together. And as we come together corporately, this place, Calvary Chapel, that we never want to exalt a name. We don't want to exalt a building. We don't want to exalt the name Calvary Chapel. We want to bring glory and honor to the Lord. Amen. And we always want to keep that in mind and a priority for us because it can come in a very subtle way where we begin to exalt a name. We begin to exalt a person. We can begin to exalt, um, you know, a, a building, programs, whatever budgets it might be. Look how big they are. Look how grand their building is in all of this. And may it not be that way for us. May we be content with God has given to us. And he's given us a lot. This is a wonderful facility for us. And I don't want to exalt a building ever. I want to exalt the Lord and use it for God's glory. That's really my desire always, is that as we come together, that his name is exalted, that he's the one that is to be lifted up. And whatever the Lord might do with us, and I believe that he wants to do so much with this fellowship, Calvary Chapel. Not that he hasn't done a lot. He has. He's done a marvelous work, and I believe he's going to be faithful to continue doing a marvelous work. I believe he wants to do so much more. But whatever he does through us and in us, I always want the Lord to be magnified. You know, with, with new people coming and with the school coming chess, sometimes people ask, you know, have you ever think about getting another facility, a bigger facility? And it, it's been in the back of our minds. But we've been, you know, doing some uh, remodeling and things like that. Because we want to be good stewards of what God has given to us. I want to be content. But here's the thing. If the Lord ever did, you know, have us go to another facility or expand in that way, I want Him to be glorified. I want Him to be glorified. I don't want to get into gimmicks. I don't want to put the church into, you know, this this burden of big debt and all of this. I want God to be glorified in whatever he does so you and I, that we can see what God is doing and say, God be glorified, great things he is doing. And we know that, that where God guides, that he provides. And it's a wonderful testimony and witness, not only to us, but to this community. 
That's my desire more than anything. Lord, that if you were someday going to expand us, what my prayer and hope is that you be glorified through it. And it would be a wonderful testimony to this community of your great provision for us. That's my desire, that he be glorified in it. Not that we're going to get into tricky financing or let's have this big fundraising and all of this. I want God to be glorified. I hope I'm articulating that well enough because that's what we need to do. Trust in him and look to him. And God had provided for this temple to be built. And David had gathered the spoils, you know, as God had blessed him to be able to do this. May God be glorified. Let me tell you what is a wonderful witness to this community, to this fellowship, and to others, is when we're willing to say, we're going to wait on you, Lord. We're going to wait on you and trust in you, and we're going to be content in what you're doing. And Lord, we want to further the kingdom. We want to minister. We want to keep that the focus. We want to exalt your name. So here is Solomon. They're worshiping the Lord. They're exalting the name of the Lord. That was the desire of Solomon and David as well. In verse 13, indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were in one to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanksgiving uh, and thanks, thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Will we always remember that God is good? And maybe tonight you're here and you're going through some difficult days or challenging circumstances. But I want you to remember that God is good. And we're going to see that Solomon, as he gives that prayer dedication here in just a little bit, that he's going to say that, God, you're the one that fulfilled your word. God is good, and his ways are good, and his mercy endures forever. We need the mercy of God, don't we, in our lives? Not getting what we deserve. And his mercy endures forever. And you and I, who are Christians, who have given our hearts to Jesus Christ, we've received his mercy and his grace, the unmerited favor of God. His mercy endures forever. He is good, he is faithful, he is true. And his love will not fail us, and he will always be with us. And so here they're just worshiping the Lord, and that the house of the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Here is the, as I mentioned to you, just the height, the apex of the glory of God being manifested to this nation and for this nation. In chapter 6, then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. The cloud of glory has long been associated, as you know, with the presence of God. There in the wilderness, there was a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day that was hovering over the tabernacle. The temple here was a place where God would meet with his people. And, uh, and the Shekinah glory of God would be. In the book of Ezekiel, as the people of this nation, the nation of Judah, would be committing all kinds of idolatry and involved in false worship, did Ezekiel at one time sees the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, leave the temple and would depart and go over uh, the Mount of Olives and then depart from it. Such a contrast to what we're seeing here the glory of God being manifested, so much so that the priests couldn't minister so much. Well, my prayer is that the glory of God would be manifested here. And I'm not talking about this 
you know, this awesome, you know, Shekinah glory, but what I mean is through you and through me. The glory of God is we're just loving others and giving truth and serving the Lord in humility. That the people somehow would see just the glory, the, the presence, sense the presence of God. That they would just know something of the goodness of God because the Holy Spirit is in us. God lives inside of us. Here in Jerusalem at this temple, God was in that temple, but now he is in us, the glory of God. And may it be manifested to others as we share with them the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, love them with the love of the Lord, showing compassion and kindness to others, really caring about others and serving others. So here is the glory of the Lord, and Solomon is going to give this speech upon the completion of the temple. In verse 3, the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying. And so Solomon blesses the people. He blesses God. God has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David. So the temple was really the fulfillment of God's plan, not David's or Solomon's plan. The work was really God's. And it's the same in our own lives, isn't it? Again, we being the temple of God individually, and we together as we make up this church, uh, that we're the temple of God corporately. And it's really God's work that he's doing through you and that he's doing through this place. And he will finish that work. He promised that he will complete that work that he has begun in us, as Paul writes in the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. We see that David, uh, as he continues saying, verse 5, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So here God uh, is reminding them that I brought you out of Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments and the law. He gave them the civil laws, the religious law, the ceremonial law. They were all ready as a nation. They eventually would come into the promised land. And when they did, the Lord said, I'm going to choose for myself a place where my name is going to be set, where you're going to come and worship me and sacrifice. And now he has done that, and that is Jerusalem. He says, I've chosen Jerusalem as my holy city. Now, keep that in mind when you watch the news and there's the talk about the you know negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians and they begin to discuss the whole issue of Jerusalem and they start discussing who Jerusalem belongs to well we have the answer don't we we have the answer that God says that Jerusalem belongs to me I've chosen Jerusalem the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob And this is my city that I've set my name on. And David is the one that is going to be my ruler. And of course, David is, he is going to, upon the throne of David, is going to come Messiah. And then his throne being established forever. And so here he talks about, now it was verse 7, in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, 
you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the story that David wanted to build the temple, but God was blessed that David wanted to honor him, that indeed he was a man after God's own heart. Listen, sometimes the Lord will put something on your heart because you desire to honor the Lord. You desire to bless the Lord. You want to do something for the Lord. But the Lord might come back and say, you know what, I'm blessed that that you want to do this, but I don't want you to do this. I want somebody else to do it. Or I have something else for you. Don't think that the Lord is rejecting you. Don't think that he doesn't have anything for you. But I know in my own heart that I've thought, you know, I'd like to do this for the Lord. And the Lord said, no, Jeff, that's not what I called you to do. It's not the direction I want you to go. I think the Lord is blessed when we desire to want to honor him. But just allow him to direct you and guide you, just as he did David. David didn't get upset. David did what he could do. And David was directed by the Lord in what he did in uh, preparing for the temple to be built. But sometimes the Lord will come along and say, that's not exactly what I want you to do. And just be open and sensitive to the leading of the Lord. In verse 10, so the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. So God will always fulfill his word that he's given to us. Will you always remember that? He will fulfill his word. His word is true. His promises are true. Now, sometimes in circumstances in our lives, we might think, Lord, how are you going to fulfill your word? How is this promise going to work out in my circumstance or in my situation? He is faithful. His word is true. Now, there is words given to us all around us, voices that come from the world. But the world's advice and the world's philosophy and the world's ways changes constantly. God's word is true and it doesn't change. And God is the one that will not be a liar. And his word will be fulfilled, his promises in our lives. How exactly he does it, we might scratch our heads and think, Lord, how's it going to work? How's this going to be fulfilled? He will fulfill his word and his promises for you and for me. Every dot and tittle of it. In verse 12, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long and five cubits wide and three cubits high and had set it in the midst of the court and he stood on it, knelt down in his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. So Solomon is going to give this dedication of prayer. He builds this platform. He, he knelt down on his knees, spread out his hands in prayer. It, it was a sign in the Old Testament, a tradition to spread out your hands to heaven. It was symbolic of surrender, of, of openness and humility. And that's what we need to do when we go to the Lord. More importantly than the position of your body, if you want to get on your knees and lift your hands up to the Lord, I think that's great. But what is the position of your heart? Is there surrender in your heart? Is there humility in coming to the Lord? In openness, not demanding, not claiming. It's, Lord, I come to you. You are great, Lord. You're the creator. Lord, your word is true. And just coming in that humility to the Lord and surrender to the Lord and openness to the Lord. And that's what Solomon is doing here as he begins to give this 
this prayer of dedication in verse 14, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you have promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your son takes heed to their way, that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. In verse 17, And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. So Solomon begins the prayer by remembering the greatness of God and then the faithfulness of God. He is the only true God there is. He's the creator. Solomon's going to recognize that this temple can't contain God, that God holds the heavens, you know, in the palm of his hand. And because of your faithfulness, now keep your word which you have given. Solomon is speaking, what he's doing is he's speaking with confidence of the goodness of God. He is, as sometimes we might say, laying hold of the promises of God. Or sometimes we'll say, I claim God's promise. I think a a good uh, terminology to say is, verify your word, Lord. Verify your word to me. Because your word is true and you are faithful and you are good. In verse 18, but will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord. May God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be opened towards this temple day and night, towards the place where you said you would put your name, and you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. In verse 21, And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. So Solomon is asking God to dwell in this place. And your eyes are going to be on this place. And hear the prayers of those who come and seek you in this place. Solomon is then going to continue this prayer. And he's going to pray about problems that people have with neighbors. And then he's going to pray for the nation. When the nation begins to rebel against the Lord and needs forgiveness. He ends verse 21, as we said, and when you hear, forgive. The greatest need that man has is forgiveness of sin, isn't it? So let's begin to read as he says, if anyone, as he continues his prayer, sins against his neighbor, verse 22, and is forced to take an oath, and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. If you took an oath at the temple, it was serious because God knows all things. He sees all things. He is their true judge. So if they came to the temple to settle manners and you took an oath, hey, God is the one that knows everything. You know, sometimes we might think, hey, I'm pulling a fast one on my boss or co-workers or on my you know, neighbors or even on my family, on my friends. You might think that you can pull a fast one on somebody, whoever it might be, but you can never pull a fast one on the Lord. He sees all things. Everything is seen by the Lord. He knows all things. So we need to remember that. 
We can fool people, we can deceive people, whatever it might be, but we are not getting away with it because our Lord sees everything. And he's the righteous judge. That's what Solomon is saying. Keep that in mind when you take an oath that you're not getting away if you try to pull a fast one on the Lord. But you need to return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. And we continue reading in verse 25. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Bring them back into the land which you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. And they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. So Solomon here is now uh, as he is praying for the nation. If we sin, if we turn against you and the heavens are shut up, that was part of that covenant. There's going to be drought, there's going to be famine, there's going to be plagues. Uh, Verse 27, then here in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. We see here that Solomon, he reminds us that the ways of God are good. And we should walk in the ways of the Lord because they are good. And that's why it's important that we know the ways of the Lord and that we teach them to others, to our children, or who we have opportunity to. God's ways are good. Always remember that. God wants only good for you and to bless your life. Verse 28, when there's famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, we're going to see all that's going to come to them as we continue in Second Chronicles because of their disobedience. Besiege them in the land, their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hand to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. Sometimes we think we know people, and, and we can know people. We can know them fairly well, but God is the only one that truly knows the hearts of individuals. He knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. And moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray to in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I built is called by your name. Hear us in a time of plague, of famine. Remember um, that, uh, as God is saying in Solomon in his prayer dedication, that there is a turning to God. That is what repentance is about. Calling out to him, there is forgiveness. And when the foreigner comes and prays and seeks you, that you may hear them. My prayer is is that we would bring those who don't know the Lord to this place. That they might call out on the Lord. Because we give them opportunity to. That we would be ones saying, Lord, I want to be ones that I want to bring that person who's a stranger to you. Not that the Lord doesn't know them but doesn't have a personal relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. I want to bring them to this sanctuary where they can call out on you and receive salvation as they turn to you, 
as they receive forgiveness in their own lives, realizing they need the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we continue here as in verse 38, if you'll turn there. Actually, back up. <laughs> Let's go to verse 20, 34, right? When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards the city which you have chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Interesting, Solomon recognizes, right, that we've all sinned. That's what Romans chapter 3 declares to you and to me, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Israel was to be a witness to the other nations. They were to be a witness of the of the faithfulness and goodness of God. And here Solomon is praying, hey, when the foreigner comes, that you are to receive them, that they are to come to this place, hear them when they call upon you. You ever notice that it's always with Jesus and the Gospels come. It's never get away. It's always come. And here Solomon is saying that we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And when we do sin and go into captivity, we can turn towards this place. And the message that we can give to others is you've sinned, but you can turn to God. And anybody who truly comes with their hearts ready and humbled before God, desiring to turn to God, he's going to receive them. He's going to say, come, come. And here Solomon is saying, when we turn away from you, when we sin, when we're taken off into captivity, may we turn towards this place. There is always that, that opportunity to repent. Now, literally, we see Daniel did this in chapter 6 of the book of Daniel when he's off in Babylon. He opened his window, turned towards Jerusalem because he's remembering the prayer of Solomon. But I want you to remember as well that whenever there is sin in our lives, whenever there is disobedience, that we can confess and turn to the Lord. And he's there in his goodness and in his grace and mercy. They're ready to receive us. Let's finish up tonight. And yet when they come to themselves in verse 37, in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying that we have sinned and done wrong and have committed wickedness. And when they turn to you with all their hearts and with all their souls in the land of their captivity, where they've been carried captive and prayed towards the land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and towards the temple which I built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplications to maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, lest your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. And so, Father, we thank you for this prayer of dedication, knowing that Jesus is the one that brings true forgiveness, the taking away of sin, as the scriptures declare. And Lord, that um, I thank you that, that we have come Jesus' message is, come to me. Call out to me. Take of me, eat of me, drink of me. And so, Lord, tonight as we come, we, we come to the communion table tonight. 
and we hold the elements in our hands as we come up and take the elements and go back to our chairs worshiping you because we've entered into this new covenant where it's no longer the sacrifices of bulls and goats that we're reading about and only the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, but Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, who allowed his body to be broken, his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. How we thank you for that, Lord, and how we have received forgiveness as we turned to you and called upon you. And so, Lord, may this truly be a time of gladness of heart, just rejoicing, because we have a living hope. Jesus being alive in our hearts. And so, Lord, we want to recognize that and come and just seek you right now. And if there's anything in our hearts right now that isn't right or there's sin or there's rebellion or there's carnality, may we right now just confess it, Lord. We want to come with really a seriousness of heart. And your son Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. And this salvation that we have, Lord, we don't want to play games with it. Your ways are good. And we know that we can call upon you when we know that we're weak and we fail. Turn towards you and once again just be washed clean with your forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless this time as we just worship you, as we come to the communion table. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to